0: It's not our church it's his and it's not for us to lead but to follow as often as we've forgotten and acted otherwise it's always been this way the posture of surrender means aligning ourselves to the work that jesus is already doing it is to lay down all of that which we prize in order to align ourselves with the very work of jesus it's much more than just a quick fix or even a mid-course correction Former assumptions in yesterday's renewal, even relying on our own inherent skills and natural abilities, must now give way to a deeper dependency and a realignment of ourselves with Jesus. Surrender all your ideas. Surrender your answers on how to fix the problem. Surrender how you think things should be done. Surrender all the resources that you're still carrying with you. Surrender is where we come to the end of ourselves it is the crisis of belief. It's where we cry out, I don't know what else I can do. The posture of surrender is the choice to align ourselves with the work that God's already doing and to more fully trust in his right to lead and to be in control. In his book, Follow Me, Jan Hettinger shares an account of the ending of World War II, the official ceremony of the Japanese Imperial Forces to the US General Douglas MacArthur took place on the 2nd of September in 1945 on the deck of the USS Missouri BB 63. It was a culmination and an end of World War II and it offers us a picture of all that surrender involves. Hedinger writes, as the ceremony came to the actual moment of surrender the Japanese admiral extended his hand in the familiar gesture of friendship and peace but General MacArthur refused to take it. Instead, he kept his right hand at his side and sternly he said, Sir, your sword first, please. Then when the defeated admiral had handed over his sword, he then extended his hand and grasped the Japanese officer's hand to shake it. Why did MacArthur ask for his sword first? Because the formal disarming of the enemy is the symbol of surrender. Until the weapon is handed over... The hostilities had not formally ceased. And yet each of us still hold on to relics of our own kingdom, don't we? Control and security and approval and position and power and past woundings. We hold on to these so tightly like swords by our side in case past hostilities try and wound us again. But the posture of surrender requires that we lay down each, all that we cling to, including the rival kingdoms that we hold so tightly whether they involve things that we feel we're entitled to, uh, wounds from the past that ought not to have happened, opportunities that never have seemed to have come our way. All of these, friends, and more, must be laid down in absolute surrender. Uh, We're in our teaching series together on Genesis 37 to 50, a series called The Left Hand of God. God at work behind the scenes, God working in the chaos and the confusion and all the conflict And Joseph's had plenty of reasons to remain armed, hasn't he? To have his sword with him. Every reason to stay hostile and self-protective. After all, the story of Joseph is a story about past woundings and missed opportunities. Here is a man who's been neglected, abandoned, framed and forgotten. Joseph is the dreamer whose dreams have got him into a lot of trouble. He was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, falsely accused and thrown into prison. But now, thanks to Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph's ability to interpret those dreams, all of which Joseph knows comes from God, means that Joseph is no longer behind bars in Egypt. But behind everything that's now happening down there, Joseph is in control of Egypt. Apart from Pharaoh himself, there is no one greater in all of the land of Egypt than Joseph. He rules over the land. People bow in honour and service of him. And his opportunity for payback now seems to present itself for Joseph with his brothers. Even Joseph must surrender to the handiwork of God. Along with his Egyptian wife and their two sons with Hebrew names, Joseph now makes a fresh start for himself in the land of Egypt. There he serves as the Minister of Economic Affairs and it was his wise plan to take 20% of grain crops as taxes, meaning that plenty was stored up during the years of plenty. But now, friends, in the story, the seven years of famine are in full effect, a famine that extends well beyond Egypt's borders. See that with me, won't you? Genesis 41, verse 56. Those words are behind me here. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. It wasn't just a seven-year and severe famine in Egypt, friends. The seven-year famine was severe everywhere in all the earth. And so when a starving Jacob back in Canaan hears that there's now grain for sale in Egypt, he sends his sons in order to buy the grain so that they don't all starve to death. But Jacob won't let all of his sons go down to Egypt. Chapter 42, verse 3. You've got your Bible there? So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Happy to let all the other ten go. Fearful of what might happen to Benjamin. Having despite wrestled with God himself, Jacob is a man filled with intense fear and mistrust. Still under the assumption that Joseph, his son, is dead, Jacob was completely inconsolable. Jacob isn't letting Benjamin go anywhere. He's not letting him out of his sights because Jacob suffers from generational favoritism. Jacob was his mother's favourite son, do you remember? And Jacob played favourites with his own family too. Rachel was Jacob's favourite wife. Joseph was Jacob's favourite son. Joseph was robed in his father's favouritism and therefore had to wear his brother's jealousy. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt but now they're all heading down there to buy grain from him. And as far as Jacob is aware, his only living connection with his favourite son and favourite wife is now Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And after what happened, Jacob believed, well, after what Jacob believes happened to Joseph, Jacob isn't letting Benjamin out of his sights. But ten of his brothers, Jacob's sons, all go down now to Egypt. And like their father and their father before him, they are also blind to the obvious. You see, now bowing down before Joseph in order to buy grain for their father Jacob, Joseph recognises his brothers immediately, but his brothers do not recognise him. Not at all. Which is probably fair enough, given that Joseph is now adorned in gold and shaved his head and wearing fine Egyptian linen. He looks more like the king and I than the fiddler on the roof. Seeing his brother bowing down before him, Joseph now recalls his earlier teenage dreams and maybe you recall them as well. Genesis 37 verse 6, again the words here for you. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed, behold we were binding sheaves in the field and behold my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. But you'll know that not all the sheaves of Joseph's dreams are now gathered around him and bowing down before him, are they? Not all of his brothers are there. And so maybe this is a little bit of payback. Maybe it's a little bit of revenge. Maybe Joseph's having a bit of fun with them. But when Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies in the land of Egypt, it's more likely that he's actually testing them. When the brothers protest that they are not spies but have only come to Egypt in order to buy grain, their answer is incredibly revealing. See it with me, won't you? Chapter 42, verse 10. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, they may well have never been spies, and they are all sons of one man, but honest men... Honestly? Do you honestly believe that? I mean, apart from Joseph and Benjamin, no one in this family has been honest yet. This whole family system is fabricated on fabrications. Every person, every story clouded by lies and deception. I could list for you all the stories of deception, but that would be the entire contents of Genesis chapters 1 to 41. Even now, as they begin to tell their own family story as they start telling the story about their family life, they are still being dishonest men. 42 verse 13, see it for yourself. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. One is not no more. Because they sold one into slavery. Now, it might be convenient for them to say that he's dead might be easier to say that he's no more, but the truth doesn't reflect very well upon them. Especially when the one who is no more is now the one that they're talking to. Joseph says they're spies. Effectively, he calls them liars and throws them into jail for three days. Of course, Joseph spent a lot more time in jail as a direct result of their dishonesty towards him, didn't he? But after three days in custody, Joseph lets them go, carrying grain back to Jacob and the land of Canaan, Only one of them now has to stay behind and if they are to return again, they must bring Benjamin with them. But three days in prison was enough for things to start to unravel. A few secrets are starting to be shared. The truth is starting to be revealed. 42 verse 21. See it with me, won't you? Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Their hearts are filled with guilt over what they did to Joseph. And Joseph, who hears everything they're saying because he speaks their language, his eyes now start to fill with tears. And while the rest of the brothers now go back to Canaan, Simeon has to stay behind in Egypt. Loaded up with grain and loaded up with cash because Joseph sends them back with all of their grain money. The money that they thought they'd used to buy grain is still in their packs, just like the brother they thought they killed is still alive. They tell Jacob what had happened in Egypt, but the burden all becomes too overwhelming for all of them. They tell Jacob why he's now missing another son, that's Simeon back in jail, and that the next time they go down to Egypt, Benjamin has to come with them. But instead of coming clean to their father when they had the opportunity, instead of being honest about their guilt over what they did to Joseph, the brothers double down on their dishonesty. Sticking with their well-rehearsed script, hear it again, chapter 42, verse 31. Verse 31, we said to him, we are honest men and we've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest is to this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Friends, when there's never any change, nothing ever changes. That's so profound I'm going to say it again. When there's never any change, nothing ever changes. The same old story gets trotted out again, along with repeated patterns of generational behaviour. Jacob is now an emotional mess all over again. Of course, nothing he says there in verse 36. Can you see that? Nothing that he says in verse 36 is actually true. Everything that's happened in Egypt is viewed by Jacob as a personal attack and an affront against him. His ugly paternal favouritism resurfaces once more and Reuben even offers up his sons here on a whim. That's what this family does. And Jacob would prefer to live life without his son Simeon than to ever run the risk of losing Benjamin by sending him into Egypt. A land flowing with milk and honey was in the brochure description that was promised to Abraham. But this widespread famine now has not only stopped the flow of milk and honey in Canaan, but it has depleted their important supply of grain. Driven once more by his stomach, again, like his father Isaac was, Jacob now sends his sons back to Egypt in order for them to buy more grain for him. It's taken some convincing this time with Jacob, but Judah, the fourth eldest son, promises to bring Benjamin back to his father. Judah even makes a pledge. But given Judah's track record with pledges... I'm not sure how much confidence that ought to bring you. Certainly didn't provide any for Tamar, now did it? Now loaded up with more money to buy grain again, a gift of myrrh, nuts and honey to sweeten the deal, the brothers head back to Egypt to buy more grain. Only this time they have to take Benjamin down with them. On their arrival into Egypt, Joseph prepares a banquet for his brothers at his house. Already they are feeling guilty and apprehensive. And when they get there, now the brothers are deeply suspicious and defensive. They're worried about the money that was left over from their last visit. And so they seek some assurances about it all from Joseph steward. But I want you to listen to what this Egyptian says to the brothers, the sons of Israel, in chapter 43, verse 23. 43, 23, See it with me. The Egyptian steward said, "'Peace to you, do not be afraid.'" Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Here's the point. Even an Egyptian knows about their God. An Egyptian reminds the sons of Israel about the God of Israel. As the brothers wash their feet for dinner, Simeon is returned to them once more. But Joseph now walks in to greet them all and asks them about their father. How's your father? Well, see it for yourself, 43 verse 28. Your servant our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before him. Finally, it is a dream that's come true. All 11 sheep now bowing down before him. Joseph sees Benjamin and blesses him and favours him more than all of his other brothers. And strangely, at the dinner banquet, they're all seated together in birth order, amazed, but none of them say anything about it. And as far as we can tell from the passage, it was a great night of eating and drinking and merriment together. But when they all head back to Canaan the next day, or at least that's what they thought they were doing, Joseph not only gives them all of their money back again, but he hides his silver goblet inside Benjamin's bag. And then Joseph sends his steward's, out to find them. Searching their bags for for Joseph's silver cup under pressure, this family just continues to make rash decisions. Listen again to what they say in response while they're looking for the cup, chapter 44, verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. However, the steward's a little bit more gracious because the cupbearer will become Joseph's servant while the rest of them are free to go. When the cup is finally located inside Benjamin's bag, Benjamin, who couldn't leave Jacob's sight, remember, now suddenly looks like he's going to be spending his whole life in Egypt. That's when Judah remembers his pledge, which up until now hasn't been worth very much. You remember last time Judah made a pledge, he offered a kid and got a kid out of the deal. Fearful of what might happen next to Jacob if Benjamin doesn't return home with him, not prepared to lose another brother in Egypt. Judah retells the whole family saga. He's not prepared to sell Benjamin into slavery. And so Judah offers himself in exchange for his brother. Judah, who sold Joseph into slavery, now offers to be Benjamin's substitute as a slave in Egypt. And that is a major turning point for Judah. It's as close to repentance as we've seen him so far. Faced with the same situation again, Judah chooses to save his brother rather than to lose him because that's what real repentance is. That's what real repentance looks like when faced with the same situation we choose to do different. But it's all too much now for Joseph who weeps so loudly that the Egyptians hear him, so loudly that the household of Pharaoh heard him Not only letting out his emotions known, but now letting his brothers know who he is. Chapter 45, verse 3. Can you see that? Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So dismayed, they couldn't even speak dismayed by Joseph's presence. Dismayed is such an understated word, isn't it? The brother that they thought was dead is still alive. So Joseph draws them in even closer to him so they can see him now with their own eyes. And he even slows down his speech for them in the hope that they might actually comprehend what it is that he's saying to them. Not only what he's saying... But the gravity of this entire situation, verse 4, can you see it? I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But while Joseph's disclosure to his brothers about who he is is huge, I mean, can you just imagine their faces? The brothers who thought that they'd sold him, who thought that they'd killed him. Shocked, surprised, disorientated, dismaying. It's not even close to the biggest revelation of the Joseph narrative that's about to take place. Because you see, Joseph the favoured dreamer, Joseph the rejected brother, Joseph the foreign slave, Joseph the falsely accused, Joseph the prison inmate, Joseph the forgotten, Joseph the interpreter, Joseph the ruler of Egypt, has an even bigger moment of discovery about to happen. Bigger than all of his brothers. Bigger than that of his brothers. Bigger than that of the impact of Pharaoh's dreams. I want you to see it with me. It's in chapter 45, verse 5. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Did you miss it? It's there again in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep you alive, for, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you know what that's called, friends? Sovereign perspective. It's when we understand the events and circumstances of our own lives from God's perspective and not just our own. God gives Joseph the gift of sovereign perspective. Joseph sees the left hand of God. He understands what God's been doing in his life and all the suffering that's taken place from that point up until now. The God who is with Joseph has now made himself known to Joseph. God doing a deeper work in Joseph's life in order to do a deeper work through Joseph's life. All the injustices and the wrongdoing, all the mistreatment and the neglect, all the shame and the humiliation is clearer now than it's ever been before. Joseph can see God's left hand. God at work in the mess and the chaos. God working to accomplish his eternal plans and everlasting purposes. God at work behind the scenes. Friends, this is a destiny revelation moment. It is a for this I was born moment for Joseph. God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me here to preserve a remnant. God sent me here, not you. But such a clarifying sense of purpose only comes when we surrender ourselves to God. It only comes when we lay down our weapons of a former kingdom embracing the new work that God wants to do within us so that he might begin to do now a new and deeper work through us. Friends, the prize of surrender is revelation. Not in a prison cell, friends. Not in a dining room. But now inside a locked room. The risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. They are afraid. They are dismayed. Speechless. Frightened and in disbelief, the man who they thought was dead is alive. And it's into their fears that the risen Jesus now speaks peace. Jesus draws his brothers to him so that they can see him with their eyes to touch him and to dispel all of their doubts. Hear it for yourself, John chapter 20, verse 20. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Rejection and unrecognized by his own, says John's gospel, abandoned and betrayed by his brothers, sold for a handful of silver pieces. Jesus says he is sent by the Father ahead of them to preserve life and to bring together a remnant for himself. Jesus sent to do the Father's work and now he sends us in order to do his work through us. Seeing life from God's perspective. What is the deeper work that God is now doing in you so that he might do a deeper work through you? We will only make sense of our lives when we see it from God's perspective. So what is the deeper work that God is now doing in you so that he might begin to do a deeper work through you? Will you pray with me? And Father, many of us long for the moment of clarity that Joseph had in the passage today. To be able to see your hand and to declare that you did these things in order to bring about your purposes and glory. And we know that in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own difficulties, whether we feel like we've missed opportunities that we should have had or we should be entitled to something or because we feel wounded or hurt about something that should never have happened. It's so hard for us to see what it is that you're doing. We get so caught up in our own details of life. We try to make sense of ourselves and our own situation and we do it without reference to you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to repent of trying to make sense of life without you but instead we would surrender all the tools and the armoury at our disposal so that we might see what you're doing in us. Help us to give ourselves to you in surrender, to hand over all of our resources, to hand over all that we control, to hand over all position in order to bow before the risen Lord Jesus. Thank you that it's in knowing him that we can see your work in our life. And so we pray that whatever the work is that you're doing in each and every one of us here this morning, that you would do a deeper work through us and that we might be able to say it is because of God that these things happened and to do it with rejoicing and delight rather than bitterness and anger. And only you could do that work in us. And so we ask that you would. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.